My wife this week was telling me about a friend of hers she graduated high school with. Who they went and um, they chopped down their Chris- they went to a tree farm, chopped down the Christmas tree, and they set it up. And you know, it's kind of like that hallmark. Oh, we chopped down a Christmas tree, not the Clark Griswold kind with the car, but an axe. And we did the whole deal and we set it up, and it's beautiful. And they went to bed. The next morning, they woke up and there were these there were hundreds of little tiny specks all over the carpet. And they're like, oh, stuff must have fallen off the tree. And when they got on their knees and they began to inspect what the black dots were, they realized it was hundreds of ticks that in the midst of the night had crawled off their tree. Like you, I would have passed out, um, right? I had to pull a tick off my daughter earlier, two weeks ago, and it might be the most intense moment of my life, pulling a tick off. And to, to imagine a living room full of ticks, hundreds of them, they had to leave their home for a couple of days, the house, they had to literally fumigate their house to eradicate hundreds of ticks. And whether it's that or whether it's you have a septic tank that backs up, right, any of those kind of things happening any other time of the year is inconvenient. But there's something about when those things happen around Christmas that, that elevates it, doesn't it? It's like, man, this isn't supposed to happen at Christmas time. You see, Christmas, I think, punctuates and accentuates. The good isn't just good, it's great, right? If you have a good family dynamic, then Christmas means you have a great family experience because you're you're excited about seeing one another and there's just something magical in the air and you're sitting down and you're eating together and you're enjoying one another. But if you have a bad family dynamic, it's the worst ever, right? Christmas just punctuates. The good become great, the, the bad becomes the worst, and it's just the, the reality. If, if you're struggling, if this is, you're going through a divorce, if you've lost a loved one, Christmas accentuates that, doesn't it? If you struggle with loneliness, Christmas elevates that struggle because Christmas punctuates. And for us to move into Christmas with this idea of just wonder, but without the tools to deal with the wondering, the challenge is, is that we can get so disoriented by the disappointment, so disoriented by trying to, to manage the logistics of having a divorced family, and you've got grandkids, and we've got a schedule, all right, we've got two hours, now we've got to get to this one, and, and kids are asking questions, and why don't they like each other, and you know, there's just, there's weird dynamics that come into play at Christmas time. You can't cover it up with work, you can't run from it, all your personal issues kind of start to bubble up, doesn't it? Fights, trivial things, can just trigger something. And for some of you, you watch National Lampoons, and for some of you, you don't, because you live National Lampoons Christmas vacation, right? I mean, and so what I want to do this morning is kind of jump into a story that, that happens around the Christmas story. A couple who, by how they live and by how they respond, kind of implicitly and explicitly in the story, I think we see a great example of how to deal with disappointment without being destroyed by it or without being disoriented by it. Because I think it is possible to step into Christmas, to have disappointment, and not be derailed by it. Because it's going to come out, it's going to, it's going to be strong, and it's going to catch you off guard. But if you go in with a plan that this life, that this couple models for us, I think you can come out on the other side of Christmas better, not bitter. Um, we're going to be in um, the book of Luke, and so let me kind of set it up as you turn there. If, if you have the app or if you don't have the app, let me just give you a free commercial again. Um, it's free, counterchurch.com backslash app. It's great. It's easy. 
Um, the Bibles are, the, this text for the day is already preloaded. And there's sermon notes, so um, you can take notes or you can jot, jot down thoughts and then keep them as long as the internet is alive, which I assume will be for a while, all right? Um, and so, encounterchurch.com backslash app, and it'll kind of help you out there. Um, Luke 1. So, Luke was a letter written by Luke. Luke was a, a Gentile, which means he wasn't a Jew. He was a doctor. He was highly educated for his day. Um, if, you, if you were to kind of dig into the Greek, which is what he writes this letter in, you'd find that he has a really incredible vocabulary. He's really educated, and it shows in how he writes this letter. And so Luke writes this letter um, to um, a man who is curious about Christianity, who's starting to kind of follow this, this idea that Jesus is God. And so Luke writes a letter out of his research to say, here's what I've learned about Jesus that will help you. And so Luke does a lot of personal interviews. That's why you'll see things, especially in the Christmas story, where it says Mary pondered in her heart, which is not something that Luke as a writer would have known unless he spoke with Mary. And she said, oh, I remember when that happened. I thought about that a lot. And he's like, Mary pondered it, right? And so that's where some of the, some of the, the nuances and the details of this story comes from. So Luke interviews Mary. Mary has a cousin, we think, named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was a lot older than Mary. Mary was probably around the age of 12, 13 when um, she becomes pregnant with Jesus. And Mary is on the other end. Uh, I mean, so Mary's on this end. Elizabeth's on the other end. And Elizabeth's married to a guy named Zachariah, who's a priest, and they're in some ways very much on top of the food chain. He's the highly educated, he's the affluent, he's, the, he's in the upper class of, of the Jew, Jerusalem Jewish society, and, and that's the couple that this story focuses in on. And so, if you have the app, if you have a Bible, um, or if not, it's going to be on the screen, I'm going to read this section. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abishai. The wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So it's basically communicating to us, not only are they in the upper class, they come from a rich, rich family heritage connected to these two ancestors. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, which is dice, essentially, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, rightly so, right? But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, 
he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said, and in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I recognize that I just read a lot, and there are elements of that story that um, is very confusing or potentially strange and odd because this is first century Jerusalem. This is very much intimately tied with a priest doing very um, priestly things in the Jewish temple system. And, and I want you to get lost in the details because those details are the backdrop of the story. Um, you don't necessarily need to understand why he's in the temple or all those specifics. What I want you to catch is that there's Elizabeth and there's Zechariah. They're both very, very righteous. They, they have a lot of things going for them, but they're childless. And that in the midst of that, there is a miracle that's performed. And John, who um, Elizabeth gives birth to, John that we call John the Baptist out of the New Testament. John goes, when the angel points that he's going to go before the Lord, that before Jesus' ministry starts, so before Jesus starts traveling, preaching, and teaching, John starts a ministry before him. And John's, um, think of him as the opening act, right? If you went to a concert, um, the headliner's coming on stage soon, but to warm up the audience, to get people ready, to get people kind of tuned in, You've got this like leading act, and John the Baptist is that. John comes in to prepare the way to set the people up for what Jesus is going to say and what he's going to articulate in hope and life. But here's the thing. When you, when you see their story, there's something that stands out. It, it's not that these people just are dealing with disappointment. What I love about the story and the reality of the story is that we can learn a ton from them because they don't have temporary disappointment. They have terminal disappointment. Do you notice that it says that they were childless and they were very, very old? It wasn't like, man, I'm hoping this thing's going to work out. Oh, I, you know, well, well, we'll keep trying. This was, no, for decades we've lived with this disappointment. And this couple were able to do something that I think when we, we dive into just a couple different passages, what we'll see in their life explicitly and implicitly is a model an example, and that there are three practices that I think marked their life that allowed them to not only deal with disappointment, but to actually thrive beyond it. And this is a couple who, their story's been forever recorded. And a lot of the baseline of that story recorded was how they spent their decades dealing with disappointment. So the, fir the first thing that you see um, in verse 6, where the angel comes and introduces himself, and he makes this statement about them that you can easily pass over. It says that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So here's a couple who's dealt with disappointment for decades, and the way they're described is righteous, blameless. And I don't know about you, but when I go through disappointments, when I go through setbacks or frustrations, or when a cashier treats me badly, right, let's just get really temporary in my disappointment, or I'm, not, I'm in a line that's not moving as fast as I want it to, right, I, I don't know if the word blameless comes to mind, right? If I'm on the interstate and somebody cuts me off, and that's a temporary, like, temporary setback, frustration, 
blameless may not come to mind in how you would describe me. And yet here's a couple who for decades has navigated disappointment, have navigated trying and trying and trying for every single time it not to work out. And yet they didn't become bitter through the journey. They became better. And here's the first thing I think they did that you and I have the ability to copy from them, is that they focused on their choices, not their circumstances. They could have very easily, like many loved ones that you have and friends that I have, they could have easily focused on their circumstances and not the choices that they had in their circumstances. You see, they chose to continue to trust God. They didn't go to the bitter route. They didn't say, well, you know what, man, to heck with it all. They said, okay, well, what, what do we have responsibility? What can we do? Well, we can, we're responsible for our choices. We're responsible for our character. We're not responsible for the circumstances we find ourselves in. We can't change those, but we can change ourselves in the midst of our circumstances. And that's what they do. I think they, they live for decades committed as a couple to becoming better, not bitter. If you've ever walked with a couple who's dealing with infertility or walked with a couple who's lost a child, um, I think that this tends to accentuate it. Those, those relationships between, um, between the couple either get stronger or they get weaker. That kind of tragedy doesn't leave a couple unfazed. Right? I, I've, even family members that I know who were destroyed Their marriage was destroyed by losing their child because in the midst of their circumstances, they went bitter. They didn't make intentional focus to focus on their choices and their character. And it wasn't just that they lost a child. The siblings lost their family in the process. I think you see this even in the life of Tom Brady, who for many of us, we associate as a winner. We associate with the Super Bowl titles and the MVP rings. Um, but when he was a freshman in high school, Tom Brady makes backup quarterback spot. His buddy um, beats him out, and Tom Brady spends an entire year on a freshman football team that goes 0-8, and eight, and he never even throws a single touchdown. And Brady describes that. It was, I was so bad that I couldn't even break through to an opening spot on a team that couldn't win a single game. That's pretty bad. When he gets to the varsity level, his dad, his dad at that point is recognizing that Tom has an arm and he's hired a coach that um, was a coach at a local college who's helping him develop his arm. But the varsity coach says, look, you've got the upper body of a potential college player, but your lower part of your body, your feet, is a train wreck. His teammates would call him a duck. They called him a platypus foot. Right? I mean, like, that was Tom Brady. And the, the coach for the high school team had this, like, five-dot foot drill that you kind of had to move fast-paced with your feet, and it was a, a legwork drill. And, and Tom Brady struggled to do that legwork drill. One day, his wide receiver went home with him, and, um, and he noticed it was on his driveway was painted the same five-dot drill that they did at practice. Because Tom Brady woke up every morning and he did the five-dot drill because he was committed that, you know what, I can't control what kind of body I was given, but I can control what I do with it. 
And that commitment and that choice to focus and develop his legs allowed him that that same commitment is what's currently driving him today. He still gets up early. He still watches film. He still digs in and works super hard. And that's not just a story of Tom Brady, right? You go back and you look at Michael Jordan or Jerry Seinfeld or Michael Phelps. You pick someone who's been successful in their field or in a portion of their life. And what you usually find is a commitment to the choices and the power that they have in their life, not to just simply blame or write off because of their circumstances. And that you and I, we have that same choice. That it's easy to get disoriented in our disappointments and just to blame our circumstances and to say things like, I will never, or I just can't, or I won't, or that's how it is. But we have a choice. It may be that you're, you're going into your first year as, as a divorcee. And the tendency of stepping into that with that disorientation is to, to play the what-if game and to play the, all the mistakes or how he could or she could or how I could and, and just live kind of fixated on the past and the circumstances. Or to step in to this Christmas and to say, you know what, there are some mistakes I've made but this will be the last Christmas I ever make those. I'm going to begin to work on those things because I have a responsibility for who I am and my character. Maybe it's that you have kids going into that context with you. And you have a choice. You can make this a memorable Christmas or you can make this a memorable Christmas. It's going to be memorable. How about fill it with positive, good memories? Not bad, not beanie weenies. Not sitting in your underwear on a couch, watching television, kind of dead to the world. But to say, you know what? I'm, this is gonna be, I'm going to make this year special. That, that kind of commitment to choice, I think it, it floods into every area of our life. For, for the couple that can relate to Zachariah and Elizabeth of dealing with infertility to say, you know what? What if this was our last year without a baby? How can we make this year special between us two? Or between us three. And say, what traditions can we start this year that that child in the future potentially could be born into? Because we have a choice. We can focus in on our circumstances or we can focus in on the, the thing that God has given us, which is a, a will and a, an ability to make decisions about our lives. He's given, our, he's given you your body and your life to lead. And to step in and say, you know what, it may not be the best. I know that there are disappointments, but I, I've got a choice to make. Or maybe some of you like us are going into a family Christmas and you've lost a loved one this year. And you know going into that, you're, you're going to be dealing with the reality of a chair that's empty, of an aspect of the personality that was brought to that experience that's no longer present. And you're going to want to reflect on that and celebrate that, and that's good. But to not be derailed by that and to say, okay, you know what? Our past has been good, but our past is our past. We can celebrate the good, but how about start a new family tradition? Go in with a, a fresh, say, you know what? We get to hit reset this year. We get to do things different. Let's come up as, let's come up as a family with a way of doing things differently because this is a new dynamic. But I think leaning into our disappointment and realizing we have a choice of what we do with it can be an 
empowering and freeing. It's not just that this couple, I think, had an ability to say, you know what, I'm going to focus on what I can, which is my character, my choices, not just my circumstances. But I also think that Elizabeth and Zechariah had this incredible ability to see disappointments as detours, not dead ends. I think this is huge. It was the second practice that they had of realizing, you know what, this is a detour, not a dead end. In um, verse 24, um, you see that she says, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And it says that the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. We'll just stop with even that verse. What I love about that is this is in a day and an age, right? Just remember this first century context where being barren, being unable to have a child is seen as potential divine judgment. That there's a deficiency about you so bad that God himself is withholding child. Like, that's how other women would have seen him. That's how other women would have treated her. That if it wasn't divine judgment, some of them would have been a little bit more gracious and just saw her as deficient as a woman. Like, she would have lived with this constant reminder and disgrace. And even to top it off, that not being able to have a baby was a legal justification for divorce in their day. And the divorce laws in this time are pretty strict. Like, you just can't get a divorce, but this was one of the justified reasons for being able to get a divorce is your wife can't have a baby because there's financial implications. There's not a social welfare system. Your social welfare is your offspring. Their ability to get a job and to grow into adults, they, they're your social welfare. They're your social security. And so here's a woman who's not only is her present filled with disgrace, but she's reminded through all those decades that they may not have the means to take care of themselves when they get older because they don't have children. And yet, what you see in her response is gratitude. Like, there's, there's this gratefulness for what God has done, right? Where she says, the Lord has done this for me. It doesn't read like so many of us would, would kind of have a tendency to want to do it about time. Well, it's about time this happened. She's like, wow, I can't believe God did this for me. There's this spirit of like, I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful for it. And I think that humility allowed them to, to not hit the childlessness as a dead end in life. But it was a detour. And that she acknowledges that there were feelings. But here's the thing. While the feelings were present in her life, they were not presiding over her life. That she recognizes that other women may see her as a disgrace. But she's not a disgrace. When God shows up, through the angel to speak about her, God describes her as blameless, as righteous. I can, I can promise you if an angel ever steps up in this room and gives me my introduction in a speech, the angel is not going to be like, here comes Chris, blameless, right? Because it would take all of three seconds for my wife or my daughter to dismantle the blameless. Right? Maybe not you, but for me, I'm not getting that introduction. And yet, this is who she is. I think she has figured out that disappointments don't have to be dead ends. They can be detours. And that even other people's opinions about her don't have to define her storyline and who she is. Mark Burnett, who is the executive producer and creator of shows like The Voice, 
um, the apprentice, survivor, right? Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Like just this long list of highly successful television shows. Came to America in his 20s um, as an immigrant. He'd been a British paratrooper, which meant because of that, he didn't go to college. Well, when he moves to California, because he has this dream and this desire to kind of break into the, to the television industry, he has trouble finding a job anywhere because he doesn't have a college degree. He's a British immigrant who jumped out of planes. That was his education. So he gets odd jobs being nannies, um, but he gets one job selling T-shirts. And he's selling these T-shirts in Venice Beach, which is an incredibly expensive place to rent little T-shirt booths. And so he realizes that he comes here with hardly anything, and he's trying to sell T-shirts, and he can't even make a living selling T-shirts because he can't afford the booth space. And so Mark Burnett does something that's pretty indicative of most of his life. He saw the disappointment and a setback as just a detour. So Mark Burnett knew that he could make money doing T-shirts. He just had to cut out the overhead. So he finds someone in Venice Beach who's willing to rent a portion of their fence to him. And he, he uses a portion of that fence to sell his $2 t-shirts for $18. And then pockets the $16 into savings. And did that and was able to parlay that into his writing and he's working hard. He creates the show that eventually becomes the precursor to Survivor, which allows him to break into um, the television industry. And today he's worth over $400 million. And he has shows like The Shark Tank, The Apprentice, he was behind the Bible series that the History Channel did because he's a Christian, and he, he wanted to honor God through even his artwork, and, and so he created. And even when he's got all of these other things behind him, all these other successes, people are like, you know, uh, something like the Bible series is not going to work here. And the Bible series ends up being one of History Channel's most successful documentaries because he, he saw disappointments. He saw the nose as detours, not dead ends. And I think for some of us, that's what you needed to hear today. You needed to be reminded that what you're stepping into this Christmas, that you don't have to let your disappointment define your storyline. Now, you may feel like it's the headline of your life right now. But just because you may feel like it's the headline of your life doesn't mean it has to be the storyline of who you are. And that you may be walking in with frustration, disappointment, and setbacks, or even a mess of a life. But that doesn't mean that has to be the message your life shares and tells. You have a choice. You can see those as dead ends, and we all know people who um, are still living in the past. Things, events, relationships, financial decisions, they're still stuck way back then. Because those were dead ends in their life. But what Elizabeth and Zechariah demonstrated is that disappointments don't have to be dead ends. They can be detours. And that means that wherever you find yourself right now, whether you're, where I referenced earlier, coming into this season and the first time being divorced and, and you feel all the weight of that, or whether it's personal health and some decisions or some, some things that are all just kind of converging in your life right now, or whether it's your finances or your housing situation, your current relationship with your spouse or your kids. It doesn't have to stay that way. It doesn't have to be a dead end. It can be a detour. 
But through all of this journey, I think what you see in this couple is a commitment of a deep abiding trust in God. And this is the, this is the third and the final thing of how I want to close it out today. Is that underneath their story is a faith that tomorrow can be better than today. But here's the key. I want, I want you to hear. It's not blind optimism. Because it's possible, because of your personality or because of your upbringing or because of what you happen to watch growing up, that you can have a sense of blind optimism that says tomorrow's going to be better. And it's just part of that American ethos. But this is a couple that doesn't, they're not operating on blind optimism. They've had hope in the face of the biggest nope ever. Decades and decades of disappointment. Blind optimism does not carry you through terminal disappointment. They had a faith that was rooted in something. I had a professor in college who was um, an Ivy League PhD. He was a botanist, and so it was my botany course. And I remember um, I'd just become a Christian a few months before, and so I was in his office one day, um, and we were talking, and uh, we somehow turned to the issue of faith. Because I think he'd made a statement in class uh, uh, that was kind of like deriding faith. And, um, and so I, I just asked him questions about because I wanted to understand where he's coming from. And uh, we got into it, and he made this statement to me. And he said, uh, you know, I think it, faith is okay. I mean, as long as you got faith, you're probably all right. And I was just like, and I'm not going to say his name, but I was just like, you, you're brilliant. But that's not a brilliant statement. Because it's like you saying that, oh, I've got I've got faith that this chair is going to hold me up. But if it, the chair is paper mache, your faith doesn't really matter. What's important isn't your faith, but it's the object of your faith. Like, that's the important component. And that's what I'm saying here. It's not blind optimism that some vagueness out there is going to make sure that tomorrow can be better. They had a faith that allowed them to stand and stare disappointment eye to eye and still have hope. A, a faith that gave them a confidence, right? In verse 23, where it says that when his time of service was complete, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. I don't want to get too like into it, but the this is something. He goes home. This is So Mary may have had a miraculous inception, right? It may have been this like miraculous thing where Jesus is there, but Elizabeth doesn't have a similar miracle. So, Zechariah goes home, and he can't talk, which may have helped him out, quite honestly. <laughs> Being real with you, right? He can't talk. He somehow minds or writes and says, this is what's going to happen. And it says, after this, she became pregnant. Now, if you've ever dealt with infertility, you know that the this is a hard thing to step into. When you've had years and decades of disappointment, even that becomes a struggle. And the courage and the confidence to lean into the this, believing that God can somehow, even in the face of impossibility, make a way. And after this, she became pregnant. Here's the thing I just want to encourage you as we close out. When the foundation of your faith isn't vague, but it's 
a personal God who in verse 13 it says that God has heard your prayer. When it's a personal and a powerful God that we call Jesus, when your trust in Him, your ultimate hope is in Him, you have a foundation and a confidence that allows you to stare down disappointment eye to eye and still maintain hope in spite of nope after nope after nope after nope. And to say, you know what? I don't have this thing under control, but I know a God who does. That I can trust you, God. And the peace that he brings, the peace that they had with him because of what was going to happen out of their bloodline and out of the birth of Jesus, that peace infused their relationship with each other because as a couple, they were still strong. And it even infused their circumstances. That there's a great picture that came to mind that I didn't want to put up that was just been kind of slightly odd. But when I was thinking about it, I was sitting, sitting in a hot tub at the Great Wolf Lodge, and I was like, what's a perfect picture of peace? And it's a silly picture. But if you've ever seen these Japanese, um, they're, I think they're called macabres, but they're this specific species of monkey, the only species in the monkey that go to hot tubs. They live in the mountains of Japan in the snowy pass, but just Google them. It's this incredible picture of these monkeys sitting in a hot tub surrounded by snowy mountain cats. And that peace that God provides isn't paradise. It's comfort. It's wholeness, even in some of the harshest conditions of life. And I'm sitting in that hot tub, and I was like, this is what you bring. You bring peace even in the midst of chaos, cold, disappointment. And that for some of us uh, today, uh, it may be that your, your next step is just simply praying. To, to do what you've never prayed about your circumstances before. And just to go to God and say, God, could you make a way? For some of you, it may be that you engage a little bit deeper, that maybe you've been coming and you've been kind of dealing with this issue of faith and you're like, I, uh, I don't know. And at the beginning of February, we're going we're gonna to have a group that I and another couple are going to be facilitating, and it's all around conversations about faith, our doubts, our struggles, our confusions, and it's just us dealing with those realities. In a safe context, in our house, and any questions safe, any discussion can be had. I'll facilitate, but you'll drive it through how you drive it. And for some of us, you, you may just need a safe place to have conversations about faith no matter where you are in the journey, because there are some of us in this room who are skeptical, who don't believe any of this, and there's some sold out completely on board. And our, this is really designed for those people who are, are seeking and have questions or, or kind of have a lot of doubts that they're trying to process through. Or may, maybe for you, leaning in looks like just beginning to serve once a month or joining a life group in February of taking what we do every week here and going a little deeper in personal and professional life. But whatever that next step is, for whatever those, this season as you step into with disappointments, of going in saying, you know what, I can't control the circumstances, but I can control my choices. Of saying, I, I may not have an ability to, to change the disappointment, but I can see it as a detour instead of as a dead end. And that ultimately, no, no matter how big, scary, dark, or hard the disappointment is that you have a foundation of faith that gives you an ability to stare it in the face and to maintain hope. And so whatever that is, I would encourage you just to, to swing by starting point or click on starting point on the app. We'd love to, to join you in that journey.